grace and peace, Mars Hill. Happy New Year. If you are interested in knowing what Dellen and I were up to over Christmas and into the new year, we crate trained and potty trained the newest furry member of our family. Here's Chancellor, also known as Chance Island. He's our little Bernadoodle puppy and we love him so very much. But this also means that Delwyn and I have slept on the couch in our family room for nine, yes, nine consecutive evenings. And guess what? Someone told us it would be this way. Someone told us even as I took time in the past couple staff meetings to show up and update our staff of this new pup, someone told us that it would be like this and it would be like having a newborn baby again, right? Someone told us we'd have to get up every couple of hours to take him out, that we'd feel like we were constantly changing diapers, but without the actual diapers because he's a dog. And you know what? They were absolutely right. There's something about hearing what's going to happen before it actually happens. And then when it comes to be reality, as I'm walking that reality out, my trust and my confidence in whoever told me that it would be that way actually grows. I believe them. I believe in their experience, that they know something that I do not yet know. For anyone who's ever been a kid under a parent's roof, it's like this when your parents told you the same thing time and time and time again until finally you believed them. This very specific situation that they warned you about came to fruition and you realized that day that your parents were wise and that they knew what they were talking about that they maybe actually loved and cared for you, right? For me, it was my dad saying that not much good happens after 10 p.m., Ashley. And so this was, folks, my curfew all throughout high school, 10 p.m., and I found out that he was wise, and there was some truth in this. I experienced what he actually meant and my bond and my trust and confidence in him grew. But Mars Hill, even as we get a fresh start to 2021, many of us are setting goals and we're making resolutions, knowing that despite our best planning and predictions, we don't really know what lies ahead of us this year, do we? If 2020 proved anything, it proved that we're not as in control of our life circumstances as we may have thought. And although we're all hoping for a better year by certain standards, it's quite likely that at some point we will find ourselves staring disappointment in the face. At some point, a person we love and trust might let us down. At some point, we might feel lonely or abandoned. Grief will strike again. Chances are we'll find ourselves in a situation or two that we couldn't see coming despite our best planning and goal setting and predictions and leadership. So the question then becomes not will we encounter chaos and disappointment, church? But as a Jesus people, for the sake of the world, how do we then resolve to live in a way that's not despaired or defeated when the sleepless nights come and we are couch camping in uncomfortable situations in the terrain of our lives? 
if we want to be a resilient and brilliant witness to the world around us and not a community of faith that's merely surviving these present days? How do we then proactively weather the unknown versus simply react to all that's happening to or around us? This morning, we're picking up in our Messiah series, which we pushed pause on back in September. But if you're just recently joining us, we're taking time from now through Easter to finish walking through the Gospel of John together. We're picking up midway through John 13 and now find ourselves at the Passover table. And there's tension. The disciples have no idea what events are to unfold in the near future, though Jesus has hinted at his death. They have just had their feet washed by the one they call teacher and Lord. And here in the scope of 21 verses, there are three statements that Jesus makes that are unsettling, shocking. And yet Jesus chooses to tell his disciples what is to come. And I believe if we take a closer look at what turns out to be quite a tense dining experience, we'll find within Jesus' words and predictions how the disciples might have found a way forward in hope. And if the disciples were given hope in the face of what would turn out to be a then unknown and devastating turn of events, then perhaps for us as followers in the year of our Lord 2021, we might hold on to and live into that same hope. So then let's look at how we might be formed in Jesus' predictions in this passage as he responded to being three things. Rejected. Rescued. And then what he said about being received. First, in John 13, verse 18, he says to his disciples, I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Right out the gate, Jesus and his disciples are reclined around the triclinium. It's like a U-shaped table. And here Jesus cites words from Psalm 41, where David recounts being betrayed. David said this, even my close friend, someone I trusted who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Now this is significant because in Middle Eastern culture, as Professor Dr. Craig Keener points out, to eat at table with another formed a permanent covenant and peace. There's even one account of two warriors who were about to engage in battle, and they gave up the prospect of fighting one another because they learned that one's father had hosted the other's father at a meal a generation earlier. Sharing a meal wasn't just good hospitality or an opportunity to gather together, to see other people. There was intimacy and covenant formed around the table. This is why it was unthinkable. The most heinous of gestures for anyone who accepted such meaningful hospitality to then turn against their host. And yet Jesus continues, verse 19, I'm telling you now, before it happens, 
so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. After he said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Now imagine the disciples' reactions. They see Jesus disturbed and stricken with grief. This verb, being troubled in spirit, is one we've seen before. Just a couple chapters earlier in John 11, near Lazarus's tomb, he's been encountered death before, and here he's encountering death again. He knows that, but his disciples don't yet fully know the scope. And yet he tells the room that one of them, the people that they can see around this U-shaped table, will turn against him. John tells us they look at one another, trying to figure out who might be the one. This, by the way, is the scene depicted in Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting, The Last Supper. In this next slide, you can see this almost physical distance between Judas and Jesus as the rest of the disciples with these expressions on their faces try and figure out which one of us that's been walking together, walking with Jesus, witnessing his miracles, will now turn and betray our Lord. Now let us sit in this for a moment. You are told that someone who has stuck out some of the toughest, most painful, and pivotal parts of your life with you will soon be the one to stab you in the back or wrongfully turn you over. It's just business, they say, or it's nothing personal, or I was in a bad spot and didn't have other options. How might you respond in that moment? I tell you what, I'd have a hard time trusting anyone I was close to. It'd be tough not to question every move someone made. I personally would live in a state of suspicion, and this is why my heart breaks as someone who loves the church. Because we know there have been people within the church, shepherds of the church, that have done just this have turned their backs, and now there's so many sheep wondering, is there anyone I can now trust? Suspicion marks so many within the church right now. And yet Jesus doesn't respond the way that I would. He doesn't call the guy out publicly. Jesus doesn't even say his name when the disciple whom Jesus loves asks him. He dips a piece of bread, a morsel in the communal dish and extends it toward Judas. Pause here. This is incredibly significant. And this gesture of Jesus clues us in to how we should respond as the church. You have to know that it was customary in this culture for the host of a meal to honor a guest with a morsel of food. And this bowl that Jesus dipped from, because it was Passover, may have contained a sweet mixture combined with bitter herbs. How prophetically poetic that Jesus would extend this to his sweet friend and bitter betrayer. 
this gesture of honor. You see, to Jesus, Judas wasn't just the villain of the scene. No, Jesus loved Judas enough to extend what many scholars say is a final invitation, a final attempt for Judas to accept his love and to not turn toward darkness. And yet G G Judas took the morsel, but he rejected the love of Jesus. And as soon as he took the bread, John says, Satan entered into him. This sobers me this morning. Because Judas walked with Jesus. He witnessed Jesus' works. He was close. He was his friend. And yet he rejected the love of the one with whom he walked and chose to pursue darkness instead. Being loosely acquainted with who Jesus is, church, does not mean we're allowing him to love us. 17th century poet and priest George Herbert wrote, love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back. Love bade me welcome, and yet my soul drew back. And yet Jesus spoke this prediction, not to humil humiliate Judas publicly or to have the other disciples bar the doors, so to speak. He wasn't interested in self-preservation because his mission of love for the world, Judas included, was greater than his friend's betrayal. Jesus wanted his disciples to know of the betrayal again in verse 19, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. The disciples were caught off guard but Jesus, he was not. He was in the seat of authority as the host. Remember, he was in control. He commanded Judas to go quickly. Even in this betrayal, Jesus was Lord and authority over Satan. He didn't tell them of the betrayal to the demise of one or as a pitiful admission of defeat, but to let his followers know that when they did experience that painful circumstance that was yet unknown to them, when they did encounter the unthinkable, that Jesus was who he said he was all along. Jesus ensured that even the most bitter rejection and betrayal would be used to build up his disciples, to build up their trust and their faith in him because Jesus wanted them to know that all authority, knowledge, and power was still his, even in the midst of suffering. We see this truth come to fruition from the prophecies of Isaiah, chapter 43, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. Chapter 48, listen to me, Jacob, Israel, whom I have called. 
I am he, I am the first and I am the last. But this wasn't the end of the meal. Judas leaves, but then Jesus drops the second disappointing, earth-shattering piece of news when he says in verse 33, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. Where I am going, you cannot come. If you're a parent, you might know what it's like to prep your kids by telling them that you're going to work or need to leave for a brief appointment or to run an errand and how hard it is sometimes for your kids perhaps to cope with your leaving. If you're like our family, you tap into the great wisdom of Daniel Tiger and remind them that, sing it with me, grown-ups come back, right? And just that little bit of hope for them to hold on to makes a world of difference because you've told them that you are coming back to them. But Jesus says he's leaving and that where he's going, they can't come. Just a few verses later, this must, this must boggle Peter's mind because Peter asks Jesus in between a massive part of this uh, series of verses that we'll get to in a minute where he's going. And then in verse 36b, we look at Peter trying to rescue Jesus. Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. So not only are the disciples grappling with the betrayer in their midst, they're processing the fact that Jesus is about to leave them and that Peter will deny being associated with Jesus multiple times. Talk about a disorienting scene. Do you ever feel this way, church? Disoriented. Like Jesus has put some distance between his presence and your reality and your knee-jerk reaction isn't to heed his commands. It's to try and force proximity, to make it make sense, to prove that your devotion to Jesus can close the gap. Maybe I'm more like Simon Peter than I think. Perhaps you are too. And in the face of what seems like abandonment, we ask, where are you, Jesus? Where have you gone? I'll do anything to stay close. I'll give more. I'll read my Bible more. I'll go on that missions trip. I'll boycott that business. I'll rant on social media. I'll fight with words or weapons if I have to. I'll lay down my life to defend you, Jesus. My fear is that too many Christ followers, particularly here in the West and in America, we have adopted the Simon Peter posture vehemently, unapologetically, proclaiming they'll stick up for Jesus. But Jesus didn't come for Simon Peter or for us to defend him. 
He's saying to Peter, despite your best intentions and your strongest will, in no reality will this part of the mission end with you dying for me. Because Simon Peter, even though in mere hours you'll disown me, I claim you with my love. I washed your feet when you didn't want me to. Peter, Mars Hill, I will lay down my life for you. See, we don't rescue Jesus and become the Savior. We heed the new command that Peter skipped right over, that Jesus is asking now to be received. Amidst an upcoming betrayal and a farewell and a denial, he gives them these words. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, this verse may be so well known to you that it might be hard to grasp just how the disciples would have heard this new command. Rewind back to Leviticus 19, and you'll see the old one. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Yourself. But here now, Jesus is commanding them not to love as they imperfectly and incompletely love themselves and their own interests. He's saying, look at the way I've loved you. If not over the past couple years, look at the past few minutes. I've become a servant and washed the filth from your feet, the filth from a betrayer and a denier. I've honored Judas by pursuing him in relationship even to the end. I've told you what's coming so that you believe in me. And if you believe in me, you accept me. And whoever accepts you who I send, they accept my father, the one who sent me. This is called the apostolic succession. And according to Dale Bruner, this succession gives the future church her pedigree, her lifeline, her privilege, and her mission. And it all hinges, everybody, not on our debate. It doesn't hinge on if we ignore or quietly write off another or turn a blind eye. It doesn't hinge on if we cancel one another out on social media or gossip about someone else's political leanings. It's not based on the news outlets that we watch or the hashtags we support. It's not based on the flags that we fly or the signs in our yards. Everyone will know we are his disciples if we love. If we love. This wrecked me over the past week. Because if I'm honest and take stock of how I've postured myself and approached so many things in my life, I've been way more clear about what I'm against than in the active pursuit of loving other people, my enemies, 
my betrayers, those who won't go with me, most of all. Just the other day, our son, Miles, he was coming up to me while I was at my desk, and he said, hey, mommy, guess what? I said, what, bud? He goes, I love you. And I said, I love you more. And Miles goes, mom, you always say that. And he left. And that stuck with me. Because I say I love him so much that it's getting to the point that he knows me for those words and hopefully he knows me for those actions too. Church, the world should look at the disciples of Jesus. And when we live out our love, when we love one another actively and radically, even when it doesn't make sense, may the world say that same thing. You always say that. You always show up in love. Love is your go-to. Love is your priority. Love is the command that you follow. Love is your resolution. May love be our greatest resolution, church. Where does this leave us? A page has been turned to a new year, and yet there are some unknowns ahead. We can't choose light for people who walk towards darkness like Judas did. There will be Peters out there who are sure they can defend Christ as if he's not the one who already washed their feet and died for them. But we can take heart to receive this new command, to love one another as Christ loved us. Someone told us it would be this way, that if we loved one another, the world would know. So will we take him at his word? Just a few questions for us as we are starting this new year. Perhaps these questions might be helpful in your personal reflection. But I'm so struck by the fact that Judas did not receive the love of Jesus. So maybe now is a great time to ask yourself the question, how has Jesus loved you? If you were the one to ever choose darkness, if you were the one who ever denied Christ, how did Christ's love pursue and meet you? How has Jesus, how has Christ loved this church? How has Christ loved Mars Hill specifically? Out of that place of being reminded of the radical, sometimes unthinkable love of Jesus for us and for his church, the second question is what will need to change in order to make love your most meaningful resolution? What will you need to stop defending? Who will you need to start spending time with? How does the word service change for you? What does honor look like with those who have turned against you? Perhaps there's something in there, but finally, what's your next step? I long for us to be a church that specifically that specifically can sit and receive the love of Jesus and act from that place. Even when it doesn't make sense, 
even if we might be burned at the stake of our culture's uh, definitions of what it means to be loving. There will continue to be unknowns. But Jesus is I am. He is Lord. He's Lord that darkness cannot overcome. He is Savior who gave his life and our marching orders above all else church is to love one another. In 2021, may we be a Jesus people that is known by our love. And as we come to the table now, I can't help but as I close my eyes to envision Judas on the other side being extended this morsel. And I'll tell you what, sometimes I envision Judas as myself, as someone to whom Jesus extends himself, and I have to decide, will I let him love me? And other times, imagine Judas as someone, I'm having a hard time loving myself. Someone who hasn't deserved my love, who's fallen short of my own standards. And yet this is the beauty of the table. This meal is one where peace happens and covenant is confirmed and reconfirmed, where we are reminded that because of this meal, because of this meal, we might be unified in love. A love that was claimed because Christ self-sacrificed. He sacrificed himself for us. So it is with that in mind that I say the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant the new covenant that's in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So now, Holy Spirit, we ask that you come. And just as Jesus's love was radically on display around a table at the Passover meal, God, would we encounter this meal in a fresh way this morning? Would we be humbled by your love for us? Would we confess to you the ways in which we've turned toward darkness or tried to defend you when you are the one who has died for us. Holy Spirit, come be spiritual nourishment. Fill us with your presence as you have done time and time again. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Friends, we are joined by brothers and sisters all across the world. When Jesus died, he died for all people, for God so loved the world. And so we are proclaiming the mystery of our faith together, not in isolation in one part of America, in West Michigan, or from wherever you're watching, we are proclaiming this great mystery 
with saints, brothers and sisters all across the world who we have been united to as family because of Jesus. So we proclaim this, keeping our global family in mind as well, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Church, receive now who you are, the body of Christ.